When Nancy gets up and talks about that, I feel fantastic, don't you? Doesn't it make you feel good? That you hear somebody else doing a good thing. The newest, uh, the newest thing that I've learned about uh, the neurobiology research, which is amazing, I've, I've been studying it more. My friend Cliff Sarin, with whom I've started to teach at Esalen every year, has been teaching me more and more about the, at this point, rudimentary, fundamental neuroscience. But there's all these amazing ways that people have of uh, measuring brainwave activities and knowing how this is the happiness part of the brain. These firings mean people are content. These firings mean people are alarmed. Anyway, from whatever, uh, from whatever gauge of figuring out, are we recording this, by the way? Yes. That's all right if we are. That's okay. <laughs> uh, with whatever way they're figuring out, they, they know that if they, someone is talking about uh, doing a, how they did a kind act, or doing a kind act, or talking about having done a kind act, their, their neurology shows that they are happier. And they're also happier uh, looking at, hearing about a kind act makes people happy. Or looking at somebody doing a kind act makes the mind happy. And, you know, I, I, I make it up, but how do I know? But I think that it resonates with the part of us that we would most like to be. I think that we're happiest when we when we're um, actually doing something that connects us in a warm way with someone else. That we're here, we are all feeling like we're individuals on this whole planet. And sometimes when you hear spiritual teachings, they'll say we're all one, and you think, what does that mean? We're all one. You know, I go home to my house, and you go home to your house. We're not all one. That's silly. When I die, you won't die. We don't all, you know, it's not one. On the other hand, on the other hand, I think that there's on some level a connection. When I, when I see, uh, when you see as well, you watch the news, and you see terrible things happening in places in the world where we don't know anybody, and we're not there, but terrible things are happening, and people are, by their faces, pained or hurt. It hurts you, doesn't it? It, it does, because we have neurology that vibrates in, in uh, what? It, not synchrony. Um, oh, I'm trying to think of something other than the Buddhist word. The the Buddhist de definition of compassion is the heart quivering in response to uh, seeing <laughs> difficult. Well, you get quivering. All right, quivering. It's probably something like resonance or something like that. Uh, and even hearing about a kind act, you hear about Nancy doing that, you feel better. And one of the things that it does for me, I think all the time, I was thinking this this morning while driving over, again, about how to introduce the idea of mindfulness practice. Everyday life is mindfulness practice. When we sit and we say about the people in our lives that we're thinking about that are in dire or really serious circumstances, so I tell about the, the, the child that the parents can't let lie down. It's the strangest thing. They think her esophagus will catch up with her some way. And sometimes there are uh, infant conditions that people outgrow and someone else is about to die and hopes to go to the wedding. And people that we don't know in circumstances that we recognize, though, because even never heard of somebody with an esophageal problem like that, but you can figure it's a, generically, it's somebody with a child who's in a difficult state, that we actually feel bad about it, that we, we, we are empathic beings, and when we hear good, we feel good about it. And if we hear, I was thinking on my way over about, I, I guess I was listening to the news and the difficulty in, in the Congress and what's going to happen, and thinking about all the people who are upset, and thinking about, and, and wishing that it were better. And then, th and then at some point, I, I don't know whether you would call this, uh, uh, maybe this is avoidance of it, or re it isn't. Uh, it is avoidance. It's not uh, suppression. At some point, I turned on the CD that's in my car, 
because I thought I'd listen to a little bit of uh, opera before I got here, because the news was too upsetting all over the place, and the mind is, the mind is uh, affected by what you hear. And I, th I was thinking in the, in the larger, in the general generic sense, that there's so many, the, the Buddha said there are 10,000 joys and 10,000 woes, which means I think a lot of joys and a lot of woes. It's a poetic way of saying. And I think that maybe the job of human beings is to somehow navigate between allowing ourselves to be open to the woes, because if we weren't, we wouldn't know to, it wouldn't call up from us our capacity for compassion. But if we only saw the woes, I don't know how long we could stand up. That everyone said, why, you have to listen to a little opera or see a, <laughs> or see a beautiful painting or see a beautiful sunset or see three deers, deer, deer, not deers, deer, taking a nap in your garden, which might or might not be uplifting. <laughs> In my case, the deer that take a nap in my garden have eaten all the agapanthus, so, and <laughs> I have a mixed feeling about them. <laughs> my neighbor is building a, there's been a new house built, being built, and cement trucks keep coming and going. It's very noisy, but I think they frighten the deer away, so I'm happy about that. There's a whole family that lived in the lower part of my garden for some years now. But I think the, the thing that I want to see in myself over and over again, how sensitive the mind is, how easily it's moved one way or another. That uh, I, I often find myself, it came to my mind as I was listening this morning, people were saying what they were thinking about. I remember that the very first time I went to a mindfulness retreat, which was probably 35 years ago. Uh, it was a weekend retreat in somebody's house in the South Bay in San Jose. It was in a private house in uh, very cramped quarters. Uh, and it, it was a, a completely uncomfortable experience for me. This is not new. I actually wrote about it somewhere, so it was public information. But from the beginning, completely uncomfortable. I was unprepared. I didn't know they didn't serve coffee, and I had a tremendous <laughs> caffeine withdrawal headache from Saturday morning until I left. Uh, I got dropped off on Friday night. I got dropped off, so I couldn't even leave. So here you are dropped off. This is pre-cell phones, of course. So I get dropped off in a place where oh, 20 people are going to sleep in two rooms on mattresses on the floor, and I was, I was a little too old to be hip, even 35 years ago. So I, I did it, but it didn't appeal to me. And I sit so long all day with instructions that I didn't get why I was doing it. And, but I did it for the whole weekend. I sat and I walked and I sat and I walked in that ritual way that you do on a, on a traditional mindfulness practice retreat. And the whole time thinking up uh, stories of outrage that I was going to tell my husband when he picked me up about what on earth made you think I would like to do this and what, what, did, what did you have in mind all of, you know, and I kept rewriting the speech until he, because he, he, my mind was outraged. And when the mind is outraged, it keeps chewing over whatever it's outraged about to, you know, to refuel itself so that it's a really, it, it, you think of it, it's such a ridiculous habit of mind. If you feel upset, you should be looking to calm yourself down, not looking to whip yourself up more. But the mind somehow has its own methods. So thinking and thinking and thinking about that. And doing um, walking practice in the living room of this house, uh, on the mantelpiece of which was a uh, little burr, uh, one of those uh, polished uh, redwood, what do you call that thing? Uh, Burl, Burl. It looks like someone got in a national park where it says sisters are forever and uh, home sweet home. And, uh, and at this one said, life is so difficult, how can we be anything but kind? And I liked that so much. That appealed to me. That appealed to my um, already quite <coughs> prominent sense that this is very difficult, this life. I think everybody figures it out at some point. 
Maybe they have some personal blow or some personal loss or someone dear to them does. And all of a sudden we think, this is too hard, you know, being a person. I actually, sometimes I like to ask people, how old were you when you first had a thought like that? We all had a thought like that, otherwise we wouldn't be sitting here quietly on a Wednesday morning, be doing something else. We all had a thought. Minds are so vulnerable and lives are so sensitive. And you never know from one moment to the next. You don't know every time something happens, some disaster. Do you, do you not, often, not maybe not every time, do you not have the thought, uh, there must have been people who were crossing that bridge one minute before it crashed into the water, or there must have been people who were late for their flight that crashed. There were certainly people who were stuck in taxi cabs and did not make it to the Twin Towers on September 11th. You know, the, the, always you think, wow, it could have been this, could have been that, could have been, somebody had a toothache and didn't go to work that day. You know, you think, oh, it's completely capricious when we say to people, I'll see you tonight, or I'll see you tomorrow. It's a guess, you know, that, but if I think that all the time, when I, when I was a young mother, I actually thought that quite a lot when my, you say that to your children when they leave in the morning and go to school. Say, I'll see you later. And one day in my neighborhood, uh, a car out of control rode up on the sidewalk and uh, right in Kenfield and, and killed two young girls who were sisters in the second and third grade or something. And that just you know, pr probably is one of the pivotal moments in my life. I didn't actually know the girls. I didn't know the mother. My child was in the other second grade. She didn't know the girls. But that somehow emblazoned in my mind, this is a very, very, um, what do you want to call it? Not capricious, but precarious. precarious. Thank you. We get up every day as if it's normal and go out and cross streets and drive on the freeway and send our children to school and put them on school buses and camp buses. And all the time, with the unspoken but context of I'll see them later. But you don't know. And, uh, you know, I, I don't want to live in the totally, totally, all the time awareness of that. Because how could you let anybody out of your sight? You'd have to be with somebody all the time. And even then, you don't know what happens with them. So I, I often, for one period of time, you may have been here on that period of time. Uh, there was a, a period of uh, inquiry in my own mind. I, I was saying to people, when you sit in a muni bus or in a plane or a train or you're going somewhere, uh, what do you think would happen if you turned to the person and said, uh, next to you and said, what do you do to keep your mind afloat? What do you do to keep your mood buoyant? And everybody, more or less, every time I asked that, everybody would laugh and said, if you said that on a mini bus, yeah. the people would get up and change their seat. You know, that, you know it's a, you'd look a little weird. But honestly, sometimes I think the whole thing is, what do you do? When do you push the, the CD that's going to sing opera for the next 10 minutes? When have you had enough of the news of the world? When do you know to have had enough of the news of the world? I have a friend who's a nurse went to nursing school in midlife and looking forward to her first job, she said, what I want to do is I want to get a job that's 50% of the time in, uh, in the hospice, end of hospitals, what do they call it? Not um, palliative care. She said, I really love to do that with people who actually are on the way out and dying and I'm good with those, because I'm okay about dying. So I'd like to have a job that's half-time in palliative care and half-time in labor and delivery because I don't only want to look at the, at the leaving end of life. I want to see the miraculous beginning end of life with fingernails and toenails and eyelashes and all of that, and the wonder of new life. But I think maybe we're doing that in all of our lives. We're trying to balance our lives so we can stand it a little bit. What were you going to say, Susan? Um, 
Andrew Weil says that for optimum health, you should go on a media-free diet, medium-free diet. That listens to the news so much. So. <laughs> a media-free diet. <laughs> Everybody these days is on a something-free diet. <laughs> Maybe only in Marin. <laughs> Everybody, but Andrew Weil, Susan says, said you should go on a media-free diet. That's, all, that's not, not what I wanted to talk about today. I actually thought I'd start somewhere else. Where I was going to start, and I'd like you to think about this with me, is... Uh, well, it, it, it happens and it comes into my mind in two ways. I was preparing to give a talk somewhere. It's coming up called, Why is Everybody Interested in Buddhism? What's, what's all this interest now in, in the West in Buddhism? Because there is a big interest in, in the last 50 years. Uh, certainly it's not just now, but what, what about that? So I was thinking about that. Uh, and then I was thinking also, I, I wanted to tell you that on Sunday night, I was part of a panel of um, four Buddhist teachers in, um, as part of Litquake, four Buddhist teachers who also write. So I was on the panel and Mark Coleman, who you probably know from Spirit Rock, Mark Coleman, who's a, uh, who takes people on mindfulness retreats, uh, kayaking in Baja and uh, walking in, uh, in the Sierras and camping out. And his book is called Awake in the Wild. And it's a lovely book. And uh, uh, Next to me was uh, Wes Nisker, who you also probably know from Spirit Rock, who uh, uh, has written a wonderful book the name of which in this minute, oh, Wes, I'm so sorry. I've forgotten the name of the book. Crazy Wisdom Does It Again. There you go. <laughs> or Crazy Wisdom and Crazy Wisdom Does It Again. But Wes is a great, uh, he's a great uh, stage, uh, what would you call it? He's a, not so much a comedian. He's kind of the John Stewart of... Uh, of uh, Buddhism, I would think. He has ironic commentary, don't you think? I don't know, uh, maybe. Anyway, he's, he's a good writer as well. And his interest is the interface between Buddhist philosophy and uh, uh, cosmology and uh, astronomy and this enormous world that he talks about as this life as being on the one hand, this unique life that goes home to its own unique house, but one pulsing cell in this great universe of pulsing cells that make up the story of life unfolding on the biggest, on the biggest scale, of which uh, there's only one. Um, so here I am as me, who appeared at a certain point and will disappear from this plane of existence at another point, but the plane of existence will continue and uh, on all levels, visible and invisible. So Wes was next to me, and next to him was uh, Patricia Mushim Ikeda, who's a uh, Zen teacher, uh, in, in very much involved with the East Bay Meditation Center, and a lovely writer who read from something that she wrote. So all four of us were supposed to read something that we had written that uh, clearly, that was a Buddhist thing. So, uh, Mark read a, a, a wonderful part of one of for, that we had written. So, Mark read a part from one of his books where he's telling a story that someone told him, a woman told him, about meditating. And it's a, a particular vignette. She was sitting and she said she felt all these little tiny sensations on her cheek. I really. At that point, I thought, whoa, if I felt the sensations on my cheek walking around like an insect walking around, I'm quite sure I would have brushed it away. So I'm already in the first sentence thinking, I'm amazed at this. That woman apparently sat um, seriously with serious poise. But okay, leaving that, uh, this woman sat and these little uh, 
tiny taps of something moving around on her face. And she must have sat a long time because she said that uh, when the, uh, the bell rang or the sitting was over, she somehow uh, opened her eye, or this eye, and uh, or something, and s saw that a spider had made a web like that. And that she realized, but, well, the, the, I, that I, I just heard it for the first time as Mark read it. So I also thought, eek, you know? <laughs> I see Naomi shaking her head. You wipe the first minute, right? You don't slap it, but you wipe. <laughs> Maybe you wait two minutes. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but anyway, the point of, it was a beautiful reading. And she did remove it from her face. But the point of it was, it was a moment of recognition of the interconnection of all things. That that spider making his home at that moment is just making it home. It has nothing to do with uh, the, the, the meditator. And she, because it's her body, needs to wipe it away. And the, the realization that everything that we do affects other things in this cosmos. Sometimes not that particularly directly, but here she needs to be a destroyer of someone's home in that moment in order for her to continue in her life. And, to the, uh, and a moment of appreciation that we live in an interconnected cosmos. So it's a beautiful piece, and I did think that about brushing. But So he read that piece, and he didn't say all what I'm saying now about this piece teaches, just read it. And um, which was all maybe he said about the interrelatedness of life, but we aren't supposed to talk about it very much, just read it. And uh, Mushim uh, read a piece that she had written, clearly a, a, a true autobiographical piece, biographical piece about uh, looking for a tie in her father's chest of drawers for when they dressed his body for his cremation. So, and really, she, she's a beautiful writer and talking about finding the shirt that was just the right shirt and not being able to find a tie. And for some reason, there was a pile of socks. She said, my father liked white cotton socks and they could visualize white cotton. There's a big pile of them in the corner of the room, some warm, some not warm. And she said, I thought maybe there's a tie in that pile of clothes, and reaches her hand in, finds a box, takes out the box, opens it, and it's a gun. And she is quite startled because her father had all of his life said to her, never touch a gun. Uh, and she had no idea why he had this gun. He was a peaceful man. He wasn't a hunter. It's a gun. And there was another box with loose bullets in it. And so here she is. Her father is dead in the next room. They're dressing him for his cremation. And she discovers this in a pile of stuff. And it's a description of what her mind does in that moment. And then it ends with, uh, I guess, she finds a tie. or I think she finds a tie in some other box. And it just ends. Uh, but the description that I, the, the part of it that I really struck in my mind is she described her mind as uh, whirling around like the fruits in a, in a, in a, um, in a slot machine. She said, looking for, looking for the end of food. She said, finally, the answer that lined up that worked was, and I don't remember what it was, but I thought, what's amazing about this is uh, I wouldn't have thought about the fruits in a, you know, zipping through. I know what they look like, though. And when she said that, I thought about, you know, do you know what, when your mind just doesn't kind of, is overwhelmed with data, and it doesn't know what to do with it? I, as she read it, I remembered a story. She read that, and I was saying, how do I get that? And I remembered years ago when my husband and I were on a, Early, young and on some ferry in the north of Norway, and we met a couple who, uh, uh, in, a, in the in the uh, uh, most generic sense, 
were like us. They were like us because they were a man and a woman. They were married, and he was a physician. But they were 40 or 50 years older than we are, and they had all this travel behind them. And they were used to all getting off and on and organizing with hotels and ferries and, and taxis and stuff that we were just learning how to do at that time. And, we, and they were, seemed so lovely. They were lovely. They were lovely. We spent a lot of time talking with them. They had four adult children and grandchildren. We had four babies at that point. Liked everything about them. And then all of a sudden in a conversation, he said, well, of course, in the last election, I voted for Barry Goldwater. And I thought, ta-da! And it's like the slot machine is whirling around because it does not fit in my calculations. He's not supposed to vote for Barry Goldwater because I like everything else about him. And how could that be? And how could he have a view that didn't fit with my... So you ever have that when somebody, all of a sudden, and your mind has to do chung, 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 like tectonic plates move around, and then they reorganize themselves with this new piece of information. Perfectly nice people vote for Barry Goldwater, so now it's got that piece of information. So that was, so the reason I'm telling you this whole story is when people use a good metaphor for something, even I wouldn't have thought of that metaphor, you get the, if it's a good metaphor, you get the feeling of what's the mind like the slot machine like the tectonic plates, and then you think of some situation where that was true for you. And um, so I'm going to tell you, wait, let me tell you what, uh, what Scoop did, uh, what Wes did. Uh, Wes read a, a, a piece of uh, uh, when you go out and you, the, it was a transition from in some situation where you feel like you in this world, and then you realize, maybe it was looking at the stars, uh, and suddenly realizing that if you, if you don't make a decision about naming them, or, or they're there and I'm here, that there's some point of open mind where you just suddenly realize that we are stardust. He does it way more eloquent, eloquently than I just did. But it was, again, in a moment of, of expansive mind, we lose the sense of personal I and easily get that, that what otherwise sounds like, what do you mean it's all one? And get that thing about it, it's really all one. This is just a part of it, a passing part of it. The reason I'm telling you all this is so far no one has said the B word. No one has talked about Buddhism. That Mushim talked about her father's funeral and uh, Mark talked about uh, uh, the spider web. Well, he did talk about meditation, but the spider web. And Wes talked about the possibility on, uh, probably most of us could tell a story of lying out in a bat someone's backyard when they were young and looking at the stars go by, or watching the clouds go by, or watching a sunrise or a sunset. <laughs> and realize this is a spectacular world to be a part of. Probably all of us have had more than one moment of thinking, wow, this is amazing. I think, by the way, it's amazing that keeps the mind from falling into really despair about the difficulties of life. If you get an email from Susan Ever, she will sign it, stay amazed, Susan. I would do it, except you already do it, and it's yours. <laughs> No, I write, when I write back to her on any time she sends me poetry, I write back, and I, can't, I don't want to say stay amazed, that's her tagline. I write back, I am amazed. <laughs> so that'll be mine. I read a piece that I wrote in uh, It's Easier Than You Think that begins, um, that's, that's about the fact that uh, Jerry Rice was... Uh, interviewed by Al Michaels on the halftime show of the 49ers versus the Saints about what was his best moment in football. And he said it was the time that uh, in the last two minutes of the game, Joe Montana threw a pass into the end zone and John Taylor caught it. He said, uh, that was my best moment. 
was my first Super Bowl. He said, that was my best moment. He said, uh, John Taylor caught that pass, but I felt as if it was me. And that's such a good story. And then I go on to talk about blah, 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 sympathetic joy. But I already said that in, and the Buddha said, but uh, I didn't have to talk about that. Well, so what, one of the things that I wanted, here's a whole question. I framed it with what I said, what Wes said, Patricia, uh, Mark. None of us told about Buddhism. We told stories of everyday experience and how people manage them. And then we put them into Buddhist books and we made them Buddhism. But were these experiences informed by nobody, none of those people? You know, Jerry Rice doesn't, never heard of the Buddha, I don't think, and doesn't go on retreats as far as I know. So I, I was using Jerry Rice's wisdom to explain the Buddha's wisdom. So does that make it Buddhist wisdom or is it Jerry Rice's wisdom? And what is Buddhism anyway? And we talk about, you know, Buddhist, uh, it's wonderful to study Buddhism because it, I, I believe this, by the way, that, that I, you know, I've been doing it for decades. It really points the attention, points the mind in the, diff in the direction of uh, there are uh, wholesome mind states like appreciation and gratitude and generosity and wonder and amazement, um, patience, forbearance, honesty, that lead to happiness. And there are mind states like um, greed and lust and anger and irritability and pessimism and uh, envy. envy that lead to, uh, they don't even lead to unhappiness. They are unhappiness. In any kind of, any time that, you know, say, <laughs> It wouldn't be right to say you shouldn't be so angry. You'll become unhappy. You're angry because you are unhappy. It's really a sign of what's already been happening. So, in fact, what is, is Buddhism making us wiser? Are we explaining Buddhism in terms of the wisdom that we already have? Is it... Uh, uh, is it a, a mutual dance that we're doing and we're informing each other? Is it Buddhism really that we're practicing here? Or are we specifically, I don't, even, I don't know the answer to this, I'm asking myself to, are we specifically, say we come here on a Wednesday or we come here on retreat, we do three things <coughs> during the time that we're here. We do removing ourselves from our iPhones and our iPads and our telephones for two hours or two days or two weeks or whatever, which rests the mind from all its constant input. Um, we do hearing and sharing our ideas about what makes for happiness. And sometimes we sit quietly and try to pay attention moment to moment to what's unfolding in our minds and bodies. And we call that the meditation. And then we say, well, it's the meditation that made a difference. But maybe the whole thing is a meditation. Maybe everything's a meditation. Or which of this made a difference? How many people have been coming here a fairly long time on the Wednesday morning? How many of you go on retreats regularly? Not everybody, okay. How many of you who come regularly or a long time, or not such a long time, think that it's good for you to come here? <laughs> well, I, I, <laughs> you tell me. <laughs> That's an absolutely a stupid, worthless question, because if you didn't, you wouldn't be here. <laughs> the, 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 a better question would be, uh, no, it's a bad question because it's rhetorical. Of course you'd find it helpful, otherwise you wouldn't be here. So I have to say it as an I statement. I find that I continue to come here. And every time the question comes up, do you want to continue? How do, what do you want to do? And, you know, do you want to continue teaching? I can't not, because, I mean, I could not, but I decide not to because 
it, if, I, if I don't come back with a certain amount of regularity, coming back with a certain <coughs> amount of regularity keeps my head screwed on straight. I can't misbehave myself. I mean, I really don't misbehave myself in a gross outward way in my life. I mean, I'm reasonably well-mannered and I'm reasonably, I have good self-control. But my mind is not always well-mannered and it doesn't always have good self-control. Nobody knows that, you know, because you can't tell. Uh, no, that's true. I mean, is it, for how many people is that not true? Yeah. <laughs> No, that was backwards. For how many people is that true? You know, that, that, that simile I said before about my dog growls, and, and I said my mind growls. Does your mind growl? How many people mind growls? So maybe what we should, that, that'd be another good name for a video, wouldn't it? The growling mind. <laughs> no good, no good. It has to mean something. Um, so what do you think about that question about the literature informing the Buddhism or the Buddhism informing the literature? Or are we actually doing Buddhism or are we using Buddhism as one of the things that we use to keep ourselves wise? Huh? What? The last one, <laughs> Mijo says. Maybe. We have to talk about something when we come together. They are teachings that go back 2,500 years. Yeah. It's not like we just, you know, are sort of inventing them now. I think that's true. I, th I do think that's true. And I think also that I don't know a lot about Islam, but uh, I, I know a fair amount about Judaism and a semi-fair amount about uh, Christianity. And I think that every great tradition that's survived a long time has as its basis... Uh, Peace be with you, and also with you. Um, that I think, I think probably it comes from uh, a, a human recognition that it's very difficult to keep the mind peaceful. That it's a very, it's a very fragile kind of a thing. Our happiness. Yeah, yeah. I think the really interesting thing to me is the way that psychotherapy has merged with Buddhism at least in Marin County, you know, um, and, and the way that so many of our teachers are psychotherapists. And I find, I find psychology fascinating, and so it's, it's, a great, it's a great combination for me. Well, it's a very interesting thing, because uh, I, I wonder whether it's merged with Buddhism or whether it's merged with mindfulness, because there's a new magazine Actually, I brought it one day. Uh, oh, I meant to bring it today, and I didn't bring it. There's a new magazine called Mindfulness. And from the beginning to the end, there is not the B word in it. Uh, it's good. It's a good magazine. It's got good articles about paying attention and making wise choices. It's published by the same, by the Shambhala Sun Corporation, by the same people who published Shambhala Magazine. Uh, by Buddhists who all continue to be devotionally and philosophically Buddhists. But what they have done in mindfulness, that new magazine, is that they use it as a forum for teaching how paying attention can improve everything that we do in our daily lives without, um, without a belief system around, or the belief system around it is that if we pay attention carefully, this is a neuroscience belief system, if we pay attention carefully, we'll see, we'll understand, not visually even see, we will understand, we'll grok situations more fully. We'll know what's happening. Outside and inside, we'll know that suddenly some anger comes up in me, and I might know in that moment, boy, anger has just arisen as I'm hearing what that person says, and I feel it in my body. Let me be a little careful now about what I say back, because that would probably stand me in good stead. How to use the techniques of paying attention for living a better life. And for a long time, there was a, a discussion that, that's still continuing in Buddhist circles about... I, la I, I found it very amusing. There'd be uh, um, uh, topics at... Uh, conferences, uh, what should we do, conferences of Buddhist teachers, what should we do about secular Buddhism? 
as if we could do something. <laughs> like the creeping secular Buddhism, as if we could or should do something. I think it would be great if the whole world suddenly started to pay attention. They don't have to become Buddhists, they have to pay attention. My favorite piece of Buddhist literature it isn't Buddhist literature. I usually have it on me, and I, and I almost have it memorized, but I don't. It's Pablo Neruda's poem, Keeping Quiet, where he says, uh, and now I will count to 12 and we'll all keep quiet. And then uh, it goes on to say, if we did, much more poetically than this, if we all kept quiet and everything stopped, we'd look around and we'd see, what are we doing to ourselves? And what are we doing to each other? And what are we doing to this world? And we'd stop. And there'd be a new world. And it's beautiful. Uh, and it's, uh, well, you know, I don't, I don't think that Neruda was a Buddhist. I think that Neruda was a, a, a wise thinker. I, I, I keep thinking. I'm sure I've told you that the image, it's, it's hard to use this image of the uh, now two or three years ago Arab Spring, two years ago, I think, because um, the, the movement of liberation in North Africa uh, that we thought of as the Arab Spring, which was so full of potential, did not work out as smoothly in, the, in all those places as we hoped it would. But it was a liberation movement, and uh, um, it was an actual physical liberation, not just liberation of the mind from its own torment, but liberation of people from living in unliberated circumstances. And the image that just gave me so much hope was the image of so many thousands of young people standing in a public square in a peaceful way, texting each other about what to do. And I thought, you know, there are billions of people, billions now on this earth with cell phones. And I, I, keep, I, I started to think at that point, this would be the ultimate text. Someone will text, peace is possible, which is the third noble truth that, you know, if you want to talk about the Buddha, there's the Buddha, but it is the third noble truth. Someone will text, peace is possible, and we could do it now Everybody stop. Don't do anything that you're doing. Let's stop doing. Let's think. Let's make friends with our family. Let's make friends with our community. Let's make friends with the next community. They are, after all, people just like us. That's too long for a text. But you'd have to say, peace is possible. We're killing each other. Let's protect our grandchildren. Stop. More to follow. Read my email. Something. And then see my YouTube or something, because you can't put that all in 140 characters. But the idea that so many people could talk to each other so fast, I'm waiting. You know, I'm very, very hopeful. This month's Vanity Fair magazine has an inside, not a fold-out, but an inside section of people who live in Sun Valley. And Sun Valley has become a, a vacation place for... Uh, leaders in the technology field. And um, you see all major names of people who started Google or started this or started that. And, uh, and they're young, mostly. Uh, at the most, middle-aged, but not old. And some very young. So they're coming along in this world. And they're the people who actually have the technology there to, to say, hey, peace is possible. Stop doing it. We could still uh, work and play and buy and sell and uh, plow and, 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 and reap and do all those things, but we could do them in a more considerate way that managed to feed everybody on this planet and that stopped killing everybody on this planet. So I felt very excited about it at that time. I actually, uh, for a while, I realized that... Um, um, I do not feel like we should turn off all our media. I love all my technology. I think it's amazing. I think to myself, you know, when I was a child, um, Dick Tracy. Do you remember? Who here remembers Dick Tracy? You have to be old. 
Dick Tracy was a, um, a detective on the New York City police force. And he had, can you believe it, a wristwatch that was a walkie-talkie. And he could talk to his accomplice on the other side of the street, even around the corner. You know, and that was a big deal in his little wristwatch talking. And uh, you always saw him talking up his sleeve, you know. And now I can pick up my cell phone, do ding, 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 and talk to my friend in France. I don't know if you can do FaceTime. I guess if you can do FaceTime in California, why couldn't you do it with France? But this is amazing. I, you know, I think I lived in the most amazing century that ever in terms of... Uh, but the, if we could do that, if we could spread the word, now we could, you know, with somebody will have a, a, a brilliant enough way to say to the whole world, this isn't working, let's stop. Let's do it another way, starting now. And it could happen. I have a lot of faith in that. Otherwise, I'd have to despair for the kind of world that my grandchildren are going to be in. Actually, that's the kind of thing, like reading those, the bios of all those people in the Vanity Fair, it uh, picks me up because I think about my youngest grandchild is, uh, is 13, so she was born in the millennium year. And uh, uh, if she gets to be old, it'll be nearly the next millennium. Maybe she'll make it to them. People are going to live to 100. Then I see pictures of ice melting and uh, uh, glaciers melting and uh, fish disappearing from the oceans and uh, storms all over the place of a, of a ferocity that we haven't seen before. And I think, wow, you know, what's it going to be like for Honor when she's, when she's my age? Um, what's the world going to be like? So I have to figure that I'm not the only person who's thinking that. And some of these people, like those people in Vanity Fair, who have all this technology to talk to the world, they must be thinking that too. And I take a lot of heart from that. Um, not only, I, don't, I, I think it's the inevitable thing to, to see, if you have vision, that we have to do something now, that nothing else is going to work. And because we're human beings, and we have this technology, you can see somebody anywhere doing some heroic thing. It, 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 it's, I, it isn't Buddhism that's going to do it. Although, here I am, and this is a Buddhist place, and uh, Buddhism is a good vocabulary for... Uh, explaining the kinds of knots that the mind ties itself in. That's it. It, it offers a good vocabulary. Uh, it offers for many Westerners a non-doctrinal um, vocabulary. Vicki, what? Well, I was thinking a few minutes ago, and rethinking it now, that the, in the very effective mindfulness in the schools program, the Buddha, there's no reference to Buddhism. I've, I've, yeah. done, I've, done, I've not taught in the program. I've done all the initial training to, to teach in that program. And there is no reference. But children are able to extrapolate um, on a, in, a, in a broad way from their experiences in the classroom. They see that paying attention affects positively their own classroom exchanges and that fighting stops and bullying stops and so forth and they're able to extrapolate on a global scale yeah. and say if this if, if this can happen here this can happen in a wider way that's fabulous to hear are you teaching that Vicky now you train <laughs> the people <laughs> I, I did initial training and I haven't I haven't I just haven't done it. <laughs> I was really curious I'll tell you frankly I was just very curious about the curriculum so I did the training to learn about the curriculum. Well, the reports but, I hear... I'm tired from teaching. <laughs> uh, the reports I hear is that it's going very well. Uh, my the, 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 the best line that... Um, wait a minute. What was it? The best line is that is, uh, some class that had been trained in that, having seen uh, some abbreviated film clip, I guess, of the opera Carmen commenting on it afterwards said, 
Don Jose did not have to kill Carmen. <laughs> I mean, that's a great thing to be able to, uh, you know. That's true, the extremes of opera. The, yeah, it's right there in front of you. And, well, opera, really the extremes, because I, I, I have particular, and I, I, I like opera very much, and those people who hear a lot know that I go a lot. And uh, uh, I, I look at my husband always at the key law where I poke him when one of the characters says, I am filled with rage, or my heart is filled with rage, because you know that person is going to die before the end of the opera. <laughs> or, you know, I am overcome by lust. I mean, they really, it's a, they are passion plays, and they're, they're, they're story dramas to tell you how to live and how not to live. I can't stop thinking about it. This is trouble. You know that you, you, you just, but they and they they're really written in broad strokes. But I think I I, I like to go back just to say to you because I just taught it to myself. What would I say if people said, "Well, it isn't Buddhism; it's really just common sense." What I would say is that Buddhism has a vocabulary. I just said that. I think that's true for talking about it. Like, uh, for instance, one of the things that I brought today is because they're all over my kitchen table. Because this week, somehow, particularly, uh, there's a lot of mail about cruises you can go on, you know, all over the place. Different cruises. This is to Italy's magnificent Lake District. And this is uh, on the Black Sea. And there, of course, and I also got a copy of... Uh, Travelsmith magazine, which uh, I always laugh at. I, I look at it, by the way. Travelsmith is a nice catalog. It's always got beautiful pictures, and uh, the picture on the cover always makes you want to go somewhere. It's just so beautiful. And then, in the, as you read along, it's clothing to wear on the trip. And then, inevitably, there are a few pages in the middle that sell... Um, things you might need for the difficulties of the trip. So you could wear this around your neck and it'll filter the air from the germs. Or you could take this special sheet that you could put in the bed of whatever bed you're in because to protect you from bed bugs that might be in there. And there's anti-nausea for uh, seasick or airsick. And various other things, you know, a little case with a thermometer in case you need to take your temperature. And so, but that's not on the cover of those aids. <laughs> on the cover of the Lake District of Italy and some beautiful-looking boat. So I, that always is, is a source of interest to me. I laugh about it. But then I, I find myself reading it, and I'm not even going it. And I have enough clothing, and I don't need any stuff. And particularly this week, I found myself reading this uh, Black Sea Odyssey, and I was going, oh, you know, really reading. It's so interesting. It's going here and it's going there. And the pictures are beautiful. It's not such a big boat. And it's got um, people on board who are uh, really world-class lecturers on this and that. And at some point, I'm telling you this story just because of the, of the Buddha's vocabulary for it. The, the Buddha would have said, when the mind comes in contact with pleasant experiences, desire arises. That's really simple. You know, when you're walking down the street and you walk by a pizza parlor <laughs> and you suddenly think, oh, I'm hungry. You didn't know you were hungry before. Maybe you weren't even hungry before. But the smell of pizza wafts in and you're suddenly you're hungry. Or you're walking down the street and you go past the Dunkin' Donuts. And before you know it, you're in the Dunkin' Donuts and you're buying one and you didn't realize that you were hungry or thirsty or whatever. But the smell... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, that's even, that's easy to see. I was thinking one day when I was on retreat, uh, this is how it works really if you're paying attention, I was on retreat uh, somewhere, maybe here, maybe somewhere else, walking up and down doing walking meditation, and the instruction is keep going back and forth and back and forth until the bell rings. And then you do something else. I'm going back and forth and back and forth, and I think that I'm paying attention to my body as it's moving through space and touching the floor. And suddenly, I'm in front of the water fountain taking a drink. And then if you go back, it's not suddenly. What happens is I was, if I reconstruct it back, I think, oh, I was walking along, walking along, walk back and forth, back and forth. 
and it was hot. And so by and by, I must have registered, it's hot. And then I must have registered, I'm thirsty. Registered and not thought about it, you know. Or not registered consciously, but registered thirsty. And then uh, maybe out of the corner of my eye, because I don't do the walking meditation my eyes closed, the corner of my eye, there's a water fountain there. Or maybe in the corner of my mind, I remembered that there's a water fountain there. So, and then and the next minute, and so clearly the intention arose to get some water, and the body veered and went over to the water fountain, and is now taking a drink of water. And I think about who did that? You know, nobody did that. I didn't even say, now I'll get a drink of water and do it. It just happened that this body in motion here, 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 suddenly did that. It's just an interesting lesson in uh, what motivates action, in that action may be motivated by intentions that are unconscious to the conscious mind. It's not a horrible thing that I went and took a, a, a drink of water. But, you know, if I were, for instance, uh, eager to avoid gluten, or eager to lose weight, or eager to do something else, uh, to take my medications that I have to take every day. It would be really important for me to have in mind what I put in my mouth, what I didn't put in my mouth, when I did it, when I didn't do it. And for that, you need a lot of consciousness. What did I do? When am I doing it? I thought that I would, you know, that it's really about... Um, I think that that vocabulary about the mind and in, 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 when it meets pleasant experience, into the mind that contacts pleasant experience, desire arises, is a useful thing to know. Not to say, oh, there's something wrong with my mind, look at this, I'm lusting about this. I've even been on the Black Sea a <laughs> long time ago, like 40 years ago, but it was great. I could go back again. It was very nice. You know, some, you don't just go once or whatever. But to watch how the mind just is drawn to pleasant experiences or the idea of yet another pleasant experience, which doesn't mean that you should never go on a cruise or never re-go on a cruise to where you go. Sure, it doesn't mean anything about what you should or shouldn't do, except that you should do it consciously and you should do it thoughtfully. Is this a good time to do it? Is this not a good time to do it? What's the downside of this? How many of these health aids will I take with me? <laughs> when I was there 40 years ago, I didn't need all the health aids that I now need. <laughs> to think it over. Then the mind in contact with unpleasant experiences recoils. That's what the Buddha said. And that's an important thing to know as well. That um, What would be a good example of that, the mind in contact? Um, spider web on your face. <laughs> well, spider web on your face, but we have different feelings. I myself would have brushed carefully, not killing the spider, but avoiding the wave. But you know, when when uh, uh, if you see an accident, it's horrifying. But you stay there. You call nine one one. If somebody falls ill in front of you in the street, you don't run away. It's it's it's. It's, it's bad. But you, you stay there, you call 911, you wait till the paramedics come, you do what you have to do. The impulse would be maybe get out of there. Can you think of something else? I don't know if this is a good example. I just went to visit a friend of mine in a. <laughs> in a rehab center, I almost unkindly said, so to speak, rehab center. My friend was unhappy with the program there, but that was unkind. It was a mistake. It is a rehab center. She was just unhappy there. <coughs> and when you walk down the hall to where your friend is, there's all people in all various stages of difficulty. And uh, the mind gets unhappy a little bit. You look in and, you know, maybe I have a thought the best possible thought, if the best possible thought would be, wow, it's wonderful that they have this rehab center, and look at these people getting help. And here they are, uh, 
And if I smile at them or wave at them, that'd be great, you know? Uh, they probably wave back to me instead of looking away in my eyes. I should have done that. Now I feel bad. I think I, did, I think I didn't do it because I'm looking in those various rooms of people in, in various stages of disrepair. And I was thinking, this is not so far away from me. This is, uh, this is down the road, not too many chapters away. <coughs> I think I really was thinking that. Don't you think that? When you go? Yeah, I mean, you go and visit. More and more of my friends are in this kind of places. And you go. Honestly, I like to go to the, you know, labor and delivery and visit new babies more. That's, it's hard. The mind recoil, it recoils a little bit. But I think there's a vocabulary for, it, it, it's, it's fine for the mind to do that and then to take a breath and say, wow, I was really upset. I am upset. Even, even in that particular case, oh, well, good, it's one minute to 11, I'm off the hook almost, but I walked myself into this with the ignoble thought. But really, what, what would, I would be happier to tell you in this moment would be that I looked in the room, I felt a not good feeling in my body, I thought various thoughts like, this is not so far down the road for you, Sylvia. And I didn't say hello to the people. And what I wished I had done is realized that by the time I got to my person's room, visited with her, and on the way out, put my head into that common room where people were sitting around drinking tea or coffee or whatever, and said hello, or smiled at them. I would feel better telling you that story now. I didn't. The next time I go, I'm doing it. <laughs> I think that's what we do in this life. We keep on learning. You know, this is a, it's an ongoing experiment. Or like you're on a trip and with another person or another couple, and there are two rooms, and one room is nicer. <laughs> How do you handle that? Yeah. Do you volunteer to take the, the not-so-nice room? And what goes on in your mind? <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to end where we began with the bag with the $40,000 in it. So did you hear the, the, the riddle? Here's the riddle. You go on a trip with, with uh, your partner, and there's another partnered couple going with you, and there's two rooms that when you get to your place, and one of them is nicer than the other room. What do you do? <laughs> you were going to run away with the $40,000. What would you do with the rooms? <laughs> You take the worst room. Oh, so Mark would take the worst room. Okay, how about anybody? What about you, Susan? I, I don't think so. I'd say let's share. Why don't you spend two nights there? We'll spend two nights there. Flip a coin, maybe? What I'd go is? to the bathroom and, and see which room was empty when I came back. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we could put this in lists. You know, so far, we could put this in lists, honestly. But that I would actually do the same. Because I, I am such an avoider of conflict, you know. <laughs> Let somebody else do it. Okay, what? I'm not always gracious about it, but I, I do suggest that the other person pick rooms first. Yeah. Oh, there you go, Nancy. Now, that's brilliant, because then he put it in their hands. <laughs> and then afterwards, if they pick the better one, the person that you're with says to you, why did you do that? Look at that. Anybody has another view of what they do? <laughs> you know what? This is so fun. I had such a good time today. I always have a good time, but this was really particularly fun. So I don't think I'm here next week. When am I? Here? No. Two weeks. Two weeks I'm here. Um, I'll tell you the news of the video. You helped me think it through a little bit more today. You certainly, think about the title. It doesn't have to be, the title does not cast in stone. Uh, I like that about, uh, it's incredibly easy to become annoyed. Um, all right. <laughs> all right, pull it together, Sylvia. Take a breath. <laughs> Usually when you make a blessing at the end of a class or a conference or a 
seminar or a retreat or whatever, you, uh, you uh, couch it in the sense of gratitude that uh, you feel in that moment, having been together with that group doing that thing. And I actually certainly am grateful to all of you and to Spirit Rock that we can do this here and that we've been doing it a long time. So in gratitude for the ability to be together with all of you to think about these things so important to all of us. May the goodwill and patience and kindness and curiosity and um, desire to lead a wise and compassionate life that we've talked about and shared in this time together go with us into the world and may we share it uh, just in the way we are with everyone that we meet. May all beings everywhere be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.